Welcome back to the Left Field Thinking Podcast. This podcast is supported by Dragon Hockey. Dragon is the fastest growing hockey brand in Europe. Check out Dragon's Instagram at Dragonfield Hockey. And stay tuned for instructions on how to win an exclusive Dragon Hockey goodie bag. This week I'm in conversation with one of my coaching heroes, Steve Bradley. Steve is the current coach of Streetly Hockey Club ladies team and was the founder and coach of the Flyers Hockey Programme at Midland Mencap, a charity working and campaigning for accessible and inclusive services and a better quality of life for everyone with experience of learning disabilities and additional needs. Steve's had fabulous success there nationally and internationally, through which he's really been able to shine a light on Flyers Hockey. Steve also has the dubious honour of having coached me. I probably should add, for context, I had pigeons trapped in my loft when I was interviewing Steve. Anyway, here's our chat. Right, we're recording. So you want to talk about Tottenham straight away, do you? No, no, no. Not after the weekend. (laughs) Do you want to start off by giving an introduction as to who you are, what you've done, what's led you to this moment now? I've come over all nervous all of a sudden, actually, which is, uh, yeah, just not me, really. Yeah, my name's Steve. Hockey coach, I suppose. In some ways, I do, I've done a lot of work in disability sport. I work for Midland Mencap, which is an organisation that um, supports people with a disability in Birmingham or in the Midlands. Uh, and due to my work with them, we've been able to set up a disability hockey kind of group um, over the last probably about five years or so. I think we've had that going for now and we've been lucky enough and in the, and fortunate enough to be in the position that we've been able to enter a team into the European Disability Hockey Championships, which uh, held alongside the, the mainstream hockey championships last year in Belgium and this year, all being well, we'll be in um, Amsterdam at Pinake, I believe. You might need to keep me on task, Steve. That's very much me as well, so no worries. I am tangent central at the moment, so... Right, so from your experiences, how is the game changing and where is it going next? How's the game changing? Um, I suppose as a coach, as an ex-player, at um, a, a recreational level, I'd say, um, I had a bit of time off from it about, I think it was about 10 years ago, Will, when I had some surgery and I came back and I, I, I suppose my fitness was always one of my... Um, main qualities because skill you know that's that's not really me but I just noticed how quick everything was all of a sudden I didn't think I got that much slower but I was just blown away by how how quick the ball was moving around that was one thing obviously that's a huge thing now with um, the ball speed I think the other thing just looking at teams that might play at that recreational level is how well organised some of them are and the expectations whether that's um working out presses, um, patterns of play, everything just seems to have stepped up and stepped up and stepped up. I think a bit of that is the visibility that TV and whatever channel it might be that the game's on, that a lot of younger people now actually have the opportunity to watch top players in action and see what they do, the speed of it. So that's it for me, the the speed of it, the the organisation that those levels that you might not have expected it a few years ago there's certainly a, a, a deeper understanding of the game 
And I think social media is a big factor there, actually. Yeah. There's so much more information. I remember when I first started coaching, which is not that long ago compared to you, Steve, it was really hard to find any sort of... Properly. (laughs) Yeah, it was really hard to find any sort of information. And we were talking only 10 years ago. I remember, I don't know if you remember it, but um, we had an ex-coach that used to work with us who may not have had the best people skills, I think it's fair to say, but he was very thorough. And he put up some links on YouTube or on the, on the club website. And you, I remember looking and you just kind of devoured these. And um, he said, can you spot this or this? And there was like a, a whole ream of answers. You'd spoilt everything for everyone within about half an hour. Um, so I always remember that. And that was, you know, I suppose people in the know knew where to look 10 years ago. Now you can just type anything into YouTube. You can watch bits of games. You can watch different styles of play, the whole thing, not just one amazing play. You can watch, you can almost watch club hockey from anywhere in the country if you kind of get that search right and look for players and yeah, all that stuff. How do you think the para hockey is changing? I think the visibility of it is now huge. We we started our journey in 2014 or 15. We had a little bit of funding um, to do some sessions for it. And we had just like a handful of people at them. Obviously, I'm hockey coach and I thought, oh, we can do it, give it a go. It's something different. Um, when I came into this role, I never... I never imagined hockey as being one of the sports, all those connotations of people wielding sticks around and people still say, but I was one of those people that thought that, that maybe from my own experiences, um, I thought, no, we'll give it a go. And obviously there is a safety thing. There's a safety thing with every single sport that you do that has to be observed. So from that point, we went on to compete in London in 2015 when the European Championships were held there. Um, and for us, that was our first time going to this. And obviously, I've taken or been away with teams and managed teams on days and at tournaments and stuff like that. And I was looking around the pitch and we we rocked up. And honestly, Will, we didn't have a clue. We were the first team of um, adults with a disability or a learning disability from England to actually go into this tournament. And I looked around at the Dutch team and they were practicing reverse stick shots. And I was like, geez, what on earth have we got ourselves into here? And I remember speaking to the coaches and they were saying, can you guys not do this? So I was like, we're not quite that, at that stage yet. And um, my, my colleagues were with me and said, Steve, you look a bit worried. I was like, oh, I am a bit worried. Um, we kind of got through it and we got put into our pool and we had a really good day on one of the days where we scored some goals and kind of won a game or two. So that that made it really good. But I think the acceptance now from England Hockey and, uh, and other organisations that it is there, there is like a huge... Um, movement of people with disabilities that are now attached to different clubs whether it's two or three people 10 or 12 people there are a lot there's a there's an awful lot down south or there were not anymore at the moment I suppose um there are an awful lot of clubs with sections down south uh, and it it is it's amazing what I suppose how those stepping stones have been uh, made and I I honestly think that us doing so well in 2017 when we went over to Amsterdam and won one of the sections. And uh, I suppose the publicity that generated on social media was absolutely just phenomenal. I could never imagined it. I came off the pitch, put my phone on, and there was just binging and beeping and all these messages from, you know, people who've won, have been to the Olympics and stuff like this. And you're just thinking, but I really thought we were kind of, uh, you know, 
tucked away somewhere in the little corner and we had people coming to watch the game, which was um, just phenomenal. Even though it was the terrible, most terrible game we'd played in, I think. I suppose what, what, what you've done has been kind of trailblazing, really. There was obviously bits of disability hockey going on, but as you say, that visible presence that it's yeah. had was amazing, really. I think we've had, a, there's been zone hockey or zonal hockey before, very much for um, people with um, mobility problems or mobility issues or conditions related to mobility sometimes. And they've just they've moved it, not moved away from that. That's still there and exists um, in certain schools and other groups. But absolutely, there was just a platform given to it and it, it just kind of clicked at the right time, I think, luckily. Zone or man to man and why? So I really like man-to-man. Just everyone knows, like, people know the job. They should know the job. Um, but again, it comes back to the, the speed of the game now. And maybe that's me not being as comfortable with zonal or how that pitch is broken. Um, but for me, it's just man-to-man every time. What about you, Will? It's a really easy answer for me, man-to-man. Well, that's because you can then stay closer to your player to hit them. That's why you said that. I'm too slow. I'm too slow now. <laughs> that's when I realised. That's at that point when I, when I was talking about everything had moved on. I tried to mark someone, and I was like, "Oh my god, this! I'm kind of fairly quick in some ways, but oh, I was just like, no, it's time. It's gone. Couldn't even catch anyone. I mean, I suppose like man to man and zone, they're kind of linked together anyway. So yeah. most, most man-to-man systems there's a large zonal component because otherwise you'd just be pulled yeah. all over the place. But I've tried to do a pure zone this year. Yeah. And for a few reasons. I mean, one, I'm I'm uncomfortable with it because my depth of experience with it is much more limited. So there's an element of challenging myself there. But also, in fact, I was saying this um, interviewing Sarah Kelleher the other day, and I was said, said the same thing. It was a deliberate thing to try and make a new team communicate. The team I've got is very young here. I've only pretty much ever played man-to-man, but there's also a lot of new players. And communication is naturally an issue because of the language barrier. So by making them play zone, they're all in it together. I also think with man-to-man, particularly with girls, you have to be really careful about a blame culture. And I think man-to-man can be a bit like, that's your fault. Yes. So for me, that's the other thing that comes into it. And someone said ages ago, that I think it's a constant thing when you, you know, football's the big thing, isn't it, that people watch it so much, the analysis that goes on. And and there's that lovely phrase in golf, isn't there, is it? Paralysis by analysis, where you just overanalyze it all the time, and you you then start to get inside people's heads that it's um, you know this one little problem just gets magnified. But I think the someone said that yeah we know who's you know we know whose fault it is then if someone scores or breaks free. Actually, it's not about fault. It should be about doing something properly and learning from it. But it's it always comes back to that thing of whose fault it is, whose man is whose man is it. Um, and there's no, you know, no better way to make anyone feel bad is there than someone breaking through, scoring a goal or setting one up and that's your man, Steve or Will. Why weren't you on him? Like, well, so I've just ran 30 yards up the pitch and so-and-so didn't pass me the ball and that's why I'm out of position and that's why they broke. So I can see that, you know, the zonal thing comes into it hugely, but 
just go back to that experience, doesn't it? What you're comfortable with. Um, I think there is there's need to be a blend, especially when you when you play at that high level, more expansive, and you, you know, the ball's just getting crashed around 30, 40, 50 yards all the time as well. And the thing as well from football, I suppose, first encountering sort of people talking about zone would be like watching match of the day as, a, as an 11-year-old and them criticising marking at corners. And if it was man-to-man, they'd yeah. point the finger and blame it. That's, that's the fault, as I said. If it was zone, it was always the manager's fault. Oh, they're doing, they're doing, a, they're defending zonely at corners. This never works. It's, you know, Wenger's an idiot. So I suppose that's an interesting dynamic is that you almost shield the players from blame. Um, I, I think there's also, um, um, things move on and, and coaches move on all the time, don't they? And, and play in, in terms of what they know, the experiences, the way teams play. And that blends itself to certain things. So, you know, that you can maybe you need to man-to-man against some teams. Some teams will be stronger. Um, you can let them have the ball in certain areas. That's fine. And you drop back. Um, and then all of a sudden that passes and another team comes in a different way of playing. And it just blends itself, doesn't it? These It just transitions over time. And, you know, what was the Vogue sort of 20 years ago will come back in because someone else starts to start to do it and the ideas just get recycled slightly differently I think yeah absolutely and this the you know the, the zone man-to-man is the the prime example of that it's been the main way of defending in women in women's hockey for a, yeah. for a long time uh it's just this is the period where because Belgium and Argentina men at the Olympics played it and both yeah. got to the final then suddenly oh we've got to play zone because look it's the most effective and naturally it will change to be more man-to-man based yeah. again because teams won't be used to playing it. Next question. Do you feel indoor hockey is an important development tool for players? Either way, why? I've never really done indoor hockey. I would have loved to have done indoor hockey. I think it is an amazing concept, experience uh, in terms of close control, skill, fitness, keeping hold of the ball. There's just so many elements to it that should work. And you look at some of the, I suppose, some of the really good countries now or that have been dominant. It meant for me, men's hockey, which is maybe what I know a little bit more about, but um, the Germans, um, Dutch, Belgians, I think, have played a little bit of it, but the Germans especially, and they were so dominant with it in, I suppose, the 90s through to the early 2000s, then Australia took over, but... These countries do. It's almost akin to playing five-a-side football in football, and you look at the countries that have been successful with that, with that close control, and they have all they've always been that small-sided games, whether it's indoor or outdoor, but a controlled environment. So for me, it's absolutely, and I don't think England hockey. Have, I don't think maybe it's not seen, maybe it's not important enough at the moment. Maybe the the onus is on something else, but it was all, it was done years ago. There were competitions, and I, I think I played once or twice. I just loved it, loved it. Not at the short corners, but I love the rest of it. I think a lot of it with England hockey is it isn't a priority, mainly because there's no funding attached. Yeah. To it, whereas everything's driven by Olympic performances. Yeah. If indoor hockey became an Olympic sport tomorrow, you 100% would have a big but indoor. Surely, in surely the link is what it could lead to and that's the whole um, that's the thing isn't it that it's there's immediacy there's an immediacy with like Olympic funding or you know a four year cycle that 
organisations are, are given money on the basis that they will produce results, performers, um, and ultimately one of three medals. I think like England football years ago, they had to redo the coaching structure because we were, it wasn't great, was it? You know, potentially we had some good players, but we were, I think, producing players of the same ilk that could do the same skills, which is lovely. But you, when you go to a football match, you want to see someone, um, and hockey as well, when you're looking, you want to see someone that does something different. You want to see that individuality and that bit of flair. And that's what you, that's what you go for, isn't it? To see something amazing, that little kind of click or strike of a match that someone can do something amazing, not that everyone can do a, you know, one set skill or whatever it is. So the pigeons get into you, Will. No, I was going to say I'm a Wolves fan. I don't really understand what you're going on about here. <laughs> In what sense? Um, I, I, our creativity. Yeah, that, I suppose actually the last few years we've had that, but before, crikey. I remember Oleg Luzhny signing on a free transfer from Arsenal and we might as well have got a bag of potatoes from the local market. It was so immobile. <laughs> but they come with great... Um, I suppose first sign Gareth Bale and you think, oh my God, oh my God. And then you realise the reality is that he's he's not quite fit and, you, you know, all that stuff. But it's just that one, you just hold on to it as, you know, like I do with, uh, with the women that I coach. There's some amazing 15 and 16, you know, 14, 15, 16 year old players and we've got a nice balance with the, the older ones and you look at some of the younger ones and you just... You wait for them to pick the ball up, you wait, and you know something could happen. You just know it, you know all the skills they're doing training. And that's what you're holding on for, and that's what I'm looking at. And I'm like, come on, come on, you you know you can do it, you know the smith there waiting to just click, you know it. And that's what you want to watch. That's what I want to watch as um as a coach. It's lovely to be organized, but I want to see people that I suppose enjoy themselves when they go out and and there's a little bit of that with the freedom that good coaches, in whatever sport will give in that team sports, will give the players and that they have got that ability to go and say express themselves. I'm not sure I agree with that, but do what they think is, you know, do what the situation is really. What is the best motivational environment you've created and why was it special? Bag of spanners at the side of the pitch like dodgeball, I think, Will. <laughs> you know, I think this season we've, I looked a lot at, um, is it the coaching lab? Some of the podcasts they were doing with the you know, the international players, and like you, I was on furlough or you know not working a whole lot, so I was looking at all these things, and um, I started making kind of copious amounts of notes about what I wanted to do. You know, we have this exciting women's team that we're working with, with some 14, 15, 16 year olds, and um, and a real blend of more more mature or more experienced players. So I think this season has been, um, aside from obviously the stop-start stop nature of it, when we came back to coaching this year in September, everyone had been messaging, there'd been groups set up, we'd had real clearly defined goals for the team, what we wanted to do, what we wanted to achieve, how we wanted to achieve it. And I felt for the first time in such a long time that I'd really got to grips with something over I almost felt I had total buy-in from, from the team and we've gone from, I suppose, having... Four, five, six people regularly attend two years ago. So having 18, 19, 20, 21 people with people um, who are on shifts who can't always make training, but it's almost having two teams. I just feel there's, um, there's an amazing buy-in from the players and the captain as well from it. So I'm quite pleased with how that's gone this season. In terms of that, what, what would you put that change of mindset 
down to? Is it having more streams of communication that are more easily accessible? Oh, or is it something else? I think time. So time to listen to what other people have done, how they've done it, thinking could that work for us? And then time to chat with um, one or two of the other coaches, time to chat with the captain. Captain gets time to to go on and get that message out. And a lot of the players are sat there and see people weren't working, people were at home, and they're able to think about things. So there's time, the communication certainly comes into it. I also think the current kind of a crisis that we're in has led people to actually think that they really want to get, you know, been stuck in for a long time and they want to do something and they want to do it well. Um, so there's a whole lot of factors, but time, communication comes into it as well. So if we're, if we're to go, you know, wave a magic wand and we're in normality, what from what you've done over the summer that has led to this, you know, you talk about time, that might not be as readily available. Yeah. What would you be keeping to try and ensure that you can maintain that environment and that atmosphere? Uh, the atmosphere the atmosphere that's been created at training, I think, will will kind of stay with us now. We've got new players come in that just feed into it, don't they? Sometimes you need an injection of new players. It sometimes you need a new coach, you need that different injection, a different focus that your new players coming in. But I think the plans that we've put in place, and I think we have groups of players that will keep riding on with it now for a, at least for the next the next kind of season or two. I think everyone can see that we're that we're close to doing something and that's created something really it's really warming, really. You go down training and there's smiles on everyone's faces. Um, we've lost games. People still come back training what they want to learn they want to get better they don't want to lose all that stuff but it's been done in a really well, I suppose like a positive positive manner uh, and that's not easy sometimes when you've got um, older players that don't want to lose younger ones that can be easily um, and confidence can but well, everyone's confidence can be can be knocked but how supportive they've been of each other I think they've realised what uh, um, maybe a really good group they've got I was really fortunate to come and do a few sessions with you at Mencap, despite the fact I lost my R2-D2 coffee mug. It was some of my highlights of last year. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk about that environment and how yes, you create the positivity in there. So that environment, which is, um, I suppose, a group of people with disabilities, predominantly learning disabilities, we have some that use different methods of communication, so it might not speak but once you've been or might not speak as as we do but they use different ways to get the message over so that's been done over a over a few years I was thinking about this earlier on how that's just grown I think I think people have had not necessarily the best experience with team sports whether that's at school and then once they leave school then team sports for people that we've got in our hockey team it's just the options weren't there football is always you know the best the biggest and local clubs pick teams that can win and while that's their that's absolutely their um their agenda that's what they want to do that's fine there are so many people that, that genuinely miss out on on things and don't have that experience so when we when we started it we could see that no one had played or someone's mom played hockey so everyone was kind of at that start of the page a very blank page that no one had played so we just we could do something, we could um, have a laugh about what we'd done, speak about why it wasn't working. We could be really honest about things and we just watched this team 
sort of grow and grow. And then we noticed that the parents are at the side of the pitch. They'd sometimes go off and get a coffee, but they'd arrive early, go and get a tea or a coffee and come back. And we'd have, they'd be good watching us and laughing and smiling. Part of that team culture, I suppose, or that team and being so successful was the buy-in that the parents had to it and how how they enjoyed coming down. You know, you often go to coaching sessions, hopefully not so much at the moment, where you'll see coaches kind of roasting the players or, you know, giving them real grief and regardless of age. And that's, yeah, just a bit grim. Um, but we're able to create something. The players were able to to do something without a fear of failure, really. I suppose there's no back history about why it didn't work for them. Everyone was starting for the same thing. And obviously we could see that some players just moved on really, really quickly. But everyone kept going and we kept getting more and more people coming in because I think because the environment, that it was a really fun environment. And the set you came down in a session with us, well, I have to say I was getting, I, I, I won't sort of use it lightly, but I think you get a little bit stale sometimes and what you do. Um, and I think it also comes to it that you have to be brave enough to admit that sometimes. So you coming down and contacting me to a session, I was like, yeah, that'll, that'll be good. There's, a, there's an element in it that I don't want other people coaching them because I don't think people kind of sometimes understand about their disabilities or, you know, their restrictions. And that got me thinking, well, actually, that's me putting limitations on their learning by me doing that. So I think I said to you that, I gave a little bit of information about one or two players, some that might not be like being told to do things in a certain way. And that was it. I just thought, you know what? I'm just going to go with it. And I watched and I was blown away. But you not having any prior knowledge of them actually really works. And that was one of the things that, that kind of worries me slightly about them going off to other teams that people don't quite get them or understand or create the right environment for them. But I looked round and they were and they were absolutely blowing. There was sweat out of them, but they were just mad for it. And I've still got videos of uh, Nigel, oh, I want to do it again, I want to do it again. And me saying, do you want, need a new coach? I was like, no, you need to do it, Steve. And I was like, damn it. <laughs> but yeah, just that, um, you know, how, how having a different coaching kind of really invigorated um, so many of us as well, the players, me, um, the parents could see as well. Obviously, there was a casualty that night, sadly, and, um, R2-D2 was never to go on to another um, adventure again, Will. Um, heartbroken. <laughs> I reckon he did that on purpose, you know. It was a great shot. Wouldn't have been me, I you know. know. <laughs> never would have made it. Yeah, having watched you try a crossbar challenge, it definitely... <laughs> it definitely been been. 2081 trying to do it still, I think. Yeah, no, I, I really enjoyed it. And I just think it was it a was great time for me as well because obviously I was uh, off work and going through a bit yeah. of... Yeah, didn't really enjoy the environment I was part of, and just to come and be in, in this really joyous—I think that's probably the word. I was, I was just about to say there's just a real atmosphere of joy and achievement when you go to one of those sessions, and it doesn't matter. Sometimes I'd set out these are like amazing plans, like I'm going to do something different today, try it. And I remember speaking to a to Abdul, one the other guy that supports me, another member of staff. And we walked off. I was like, that was possibly the worst training session I've ever done. And we just both looked at each other like, what on earth was... I dissect things for a long time. And I was, I was still there about two hours later, just going, what on earth was wrong with that? Essentially, we did shooting. Um, and it just... We couldn't even get one pass right between us. I just don't know what happened that, that day. Um, and then you came down and, yeah, it was just all... It, things work, don't they? You can, you can just go... even. 
in that session though with that things didn't go well we were still laughing about you know we were still laughing at things and just an air of kind of real fun about it we're still learning obviously not in the way that we'd, we'd want to do or achieve in the way we'd want to do it but there is there's a real air of enjoyment I think the parents spot that and other staff members do as well I think one of the big things is as well to try and create those fun environments to coach in. It's really nice when you're not on your own as a coach. Yeah. And you have someone that you can go, oh, here we go, crikey, what's that on there? Yeah. You can have a laugh with. I think it gives you a nice sense of perspective. Yeah. Whereas when you're on your own and things aren't going well. <laughs> Yeah, you don't know where to look. You can't get that helicopter view of the session to get perspective. And it can eat you up. Whereas I think being with someone else can just really add a bit of light relief, I suppose. And that's a real, I suppose, frustration for a lot of people because coaching, you're on your own pretty much all the time. And it can be very lonely. Quite a lonely environment at times, can't it? Yeah, massive. As well, I mean, I've I've said this before with people like, you go from playing a team sport where there's, you know, 18 of you in it together to then coaching a team sport and you're kind of separated. You're not in it in the same way and you have this perception of how you need to behave that detaches you more from the group. And yeah, it can be really lonely. But yeah, no, it was those two sessions that I did with you. Uh, I, I loved, they were really good. No, no, it was, um, it, it was amazing. It was amazing as you say to have a, Sometimes you need to watch another another coach do something, but for me it was about your, I suppose, the expectations that you set of the group. I was thinking, Jesus, we're going to have ambulances, they're going to be going off with heart attacks while you're working them that hard. And maybe I, you get used to certain things and you don't want to push people. And part of what made it so unique when it started was that people were really out of the comfort zone because they'd not played that sport before or, you know, I might get hurt with a hockey ball. What do I do, Steve? Well, you put your bloody stick in the way or you get out of the way, don't you? <laughs> that's a simple answer. And that's, I suppose, why, why it works. The parents were listening to me. Steve, just said, I was like, yeah, I'd say that to everyone. There's no, you know, that's what you do, isn't it? I got it. I got it on the foot, Steve. You know what you need to do, don't you? Yeah. What? Put my stick down. <laughs> yes. Um, and obviously we take all the injuries seriously, but... It's kind of that team sport, isn't it? It happens. People get hit with um you know, hit with the ball or bumped into and stuff like that. Reflecting which mistakes that you have made in your career have been the most valuable and why? Oh, okay. So a little bit of a sad one in a way. Uh, and it, again, it, it's kind of um I think help me with the way I think about things, the way I deal with things. So we had um been a very talented group of young lads who were 14, 15 that I coached as a as a kind of a Badgers team or I've been coaching them probably since they were 10 or 11 and they'd grown up and up and up together and all of a sudden the, the first team didn't have any players and I thought they are, you know what, they are good. They are good and you you know some of the lads that I'm on about. Um, I'm disappointed you're not counting me in this group, Steve, when you said that yeah. a young group of talented players. It's fine. I won't take it personally. An older group of talented players. And and then we kind of muddled through the first season. We got the results that we kind of needed um, to, to kind of make us safe for the next season. And then I could see that these lads had just kind of all of a sudden, the confidence had grown, physically they'd grown. 
and we're, we're just going and they're tearing adult teams apart. These are 15, 16-year-old lads and they are absolutely just tearing these teams apart. We got promoted and I can see that it's that environment that you're coaching or that, you, that you're in sometimes that there was a more experienced player and I didn't feel like he was doing a good enough job for us. And maybe I wasn't brave enough to kind of call that at the time. I had a, a player who was 16, 17, 18 and I'd, I kind of thought about playing in there. It's that thing about confidence being not low and I'm not sure that I, that I fully got his, his skills or his abilities, but I did need to change something and I'd, I decided to do it. I'd had, we'd had a game on Saturday, it didn't go well. Um, and I made my mind up over the weekend. I thought about things a lot. I'm like, right, that lad's starting. I'm going to go and tell so-and-so at training, sort myself up for it. And the young lad was there with his parent and said, Steve, we're, we're going to move clubs because he needs more game time. And I was like, right, OK. I know his parent very well. Um, and I was, you know, I'm going to play Saturday. That's it. And he's, Steve, we've, you know, we've reached that point. I'm like, OK. I could totally understand it, but I think for me, being brave enough to to kind of trust my trust my judgment, and then that's helped me a lot. That lad still plays hockey. I believe he's playing um, national league now. Um, I'm not sure whatever happened to the other one. Well, I am fairly sure, but there you go. Um, but I, you know what, what what really struck me about that whole thing? There was a couple of things, but me being brave enough to, to trust myself as a coach and someone who was observing what I was, you know, seeing what I was seeing. And then for that young lad to be brave enough to come down and actually tell me that, um, that he wanted to move. And I, I was just, I was blown away by how mature that person was at, um, at 16 or 17. Um, I still see him, um, see him around, still speak to him. No, there's no bother at all. I'm just, I was really, I think for him to do that took quite a lot. And that's always stayed. That's, few years ago but stayed with me I don't know if you know the person in question you might do we'll discuss it afterwards that's really tough when I when I, when I was coaching Warwick the team was quite old that I took over yeah and older you know older than me at the time I was probably 25 and having to have hard conversations with people who are better players than me but too old yeah. to be playing yeah um yeah, this was like their main thing. They wanted to play first team because it was with their mates. Uh, yeah. They worked in you know, stressful jobs and having to say, sorry, but I need to bring so-and-so in. I found that yeah. really difficult. I felt like trying to maintain eye contact in those conversations. You know, they're also, you know, as with most people, and you'll appreciate this, Steve, they're bigger than me as well. So, you know, they're older, bigger. <laughs> Most of the juniors are bigger than me, Will. <laughs> they get moved up a team when they get taller than me. So that's it. It's like the rides at Alton Tower. We're all the threshold. <laughs> next level. You're yeah. allowed to coach if you're under that height, I think. I just found those conversations really, really difficult to have. Long term, it's served me really well to go through that yeah. when I was younger. But you do have to psych yourself up for it. And I've done it. I've spent all weekend doing it. I was like, that's, it doesn't matter what happened on the Saturday, but I didn't play that lad enough. Um, Cause I, I just, I felt it was the wrong game for him. I felt the opposition were going to just mangle him. Um, yeah. They were quite rough team. I, 
there's always an element that I've seen them grow up as badges or as young players. And I, I don't want any harm coming to any of them, but there comes a time when you have to think you're playing an adult's game. If you're here, then you're kind of good enough. Um, and I, I, I was I was really frustrated by what I'd seen on that Saturday. So I spent all weekend on the list about things of why. And also it wasn't a very long one because I knew that I, I needed someone in who was just a different player to the one that was there already for the team um, and and that lad had kind of had enough and I don't blame him in a way I've put myself in that position I wouldn't want to travel and not play um, but that that's team sport again isn't it If you could replay one moment in your career what would it be and why? What a tough question Will um, obviously there haven't been that many moments in my uh, career as such Will I was a fairly bang average player I, I think you know, out of everything, do I have to answer one moment? Is that it? Treat the question as you want, Steve. I'm going to, I am, you know, well, I'm going to go rogue on it, all right. I think me sort of making, just making the most of things when you're playing and those um, those experiences you have with your teammates, whether they're, you know, the, those car journeys when you're, you know, two hours on Saturday morning to go and play games. Just kind of, just take it all in and enjoy it. It's, um, it's, it's something that you can't get back when you stop playing and doing it as a coach is is very different. Obviously, I was I would have stopped playing by now anyway because a I was no good and b like um, you know just not quick enough. But for me to stop playing when I did was due to a medical thing. And I, I often look around at players now and they're they're not playing on Saturdays or they're moping around. I'm like, oh, just you know what? You just don't know what's going to happen. Just enjoy. You here, you play because you actually enjoy it. You're adults. No one's forcing you to play it. Your teammates might be coercing you when you don't feel that well for playing it. But just kind of, I suppose, just spreading that, um, trying to spread that enjoyment. You know, you you turn up for training, people are smiling. You want to see that before a game. You, people might be nervous, but you want to see them. They're there and they want to be there. I suppose for me, it's about making those memories last a little bit. Really. Um, I, Actually, you know what? There's one moment, Will, there is where um went to the European Championships in 2017 and sat in a room and the organiser, and if you know guy Norman Hughes, who I didn't know at the time was captain of the 1984 Great Britain Olympic hockey team. Um, there's me and my wonderful hockey knowledge. And he just said he sat there and he said, We want to make memories for every player to remember at this tournament. It just the most simple and amazing speech. I walked out of that room, I went and saw the staff and I was like, we're going to do it, we're going to, we need to do this properly. I was just, just so motivated to come away, just those few little words. And that was it from then, the sunshine, everything just kind of clicks. But yeah, making those memories, no matter what um, what level you play at, whether it's setting a goal, scoring a goal, not letting one in, not getting sent off, whatever it may be. I'm slightly disappointed you didn't mention my two goals against Sally Hill Bloss to win, win the game 2-1, but, you know, to each their own, Steve. Yeah, that was a strange time, Will, in many ways. <laughs> <laughs> you blossomed You blossomed into a player long after you stopped playing, strangely. I'll take that as a compliment. Uh, <laughs> Please do. <laughs> if you could only pass on one piece of advice to others... What would it be? In life or in hockey, I think I'll stick to them. Um, I'll try and stick to sporting ones. 
I think for for coaches, and it's something that I'm that I've heard a lot over the last few months about the environment that that's being created. What environment are you creating? You know, are people enjoying coming to those sessions that they're doing? Are they enjoying being part of your team, the club team? Are they enjoying being part of that squad? So what environment is being created all the time? I had a lovely thing as well about how would people describe you as a coach or as a person if they met you in 10 years' time? I can't remember where I heard it, but on one of the podcasts, that worried me greatly. Would they come up to you and say hello? Or would they, if you're in a pub, would you be running out the door very quickly? You get that, like from being from being in the school, you you see people, yeah, four, four years after after they've left, and they tell you generally they'll come over. I've not had anyone make a beeline yet, not to my own knowledge. They might, I might just be really blind. Held off by friends. <laughs> How would you like people to describe you in ten years' time? Young looking. <laughs> Whether I'll be coaching there, I don't know, Will, but um, I, I suppose positive, um, fair and helpful, really. That I hate the thing that you can get kind of single, coaches can single players out sometimes and it might look like you are. And I think we have to be really careful that we're not. If someone might, you know, there might be a, a constant issue with someone making a mistake and maybe that's that we're playing them in the wrong position, which is why that happens. So... And it's always easy to single someone out, isn't it? But I'd like to think that I'm fair with all the players and I'm kind of happy and positive around them as well and kind of create an environment that helps them to to kind of enjoy what they're doing, really, and go out on Saturdays and play and keep coming back and playing. You know what? Just a good club. Just a good club person, Will. That's fine. All right? The keeping coming back and playing, I suppose that grassroots teams that's an essential part that people forget yeah. a lot of the time because one week you might have seven players available if you're not creating that and generating yeah. that positive environment I see that I said I was staying a little while ago I think we've done all that stuff with the disability or I've done all that stuff with the disability hockey and I think you just get a little bit fatigued by it and drained sometimes um, I think a lot of coaches do. You will think about things and analyse and overanalyse and worry and you look at every single thing, most of which you can have no impact on, but you still worry about them and you still think about it. And I, I think it just builds up to a point where I kind of really enjoyed having a break from it all for a little while after after tournaments and no no sessions on for a month, four, five, six weeks, whatever it is, we need to all kind of clear our minds and come back. Yeah, I really agree with that. That's where COVID has actually been for a lot of people. A really good moment to create that pause and just go, what do I want to do? How do I keep myself at the level where I can keep doing it? Yeah. Who has been influential in your development? As a coach, um, I suppose the grassroots club, then the groups of players that you have coming through, for me, that keeps me really motivated when we see these kind of little clusters of start out at like 9, 10, 11 players, then it kind of gets whittled down a, a bit as you kind of go through the age groups and they progress. But always players there that you just look at and you think, oh, I want to coach you, I, I want you to be in that team. And that for me is really motivates me seeing this player turn up and you just think you're nowhere near the player that you could be with the skills that you've got, not because they're doing anything bad, just because they, they haven't quite realised how very, very good they could be. 
Um, and that's, I suppose, like an unwrapping process that you, or a jigsaw that you're trying to, trying to just give them little bits every week and hopefully guide them a little bit so that they can go on and play and, and play at a different level. At work with the disability hockey, um, I have some managers that, that have just been amazing with it. I think we've I've been given kind of freedom and license to go and do it. And do you think you can do it, Steve? I'm like, yeah, I think we can do it. And he's gone, we'll go and do it. What do you need? It's just an amazing environment to be in, that they've trusted me to go and do it, that parents have trusted me, that I won't, you know, lose their children in Amsterdam or uh, Barcelona or wherever it is we've been. They come close. Um, <laughs> but there you go. Um, so I suppose having the, in one way it's the players, but in another way it's the people that, have managed me with a disability hockey that just encouraged me to go on and to go on and do it. And then other people reaching out, other coaches reaching out and speaking to you. It's, it's mind-blowing, really, to think where we've or where I've come from. And people are kind of ringing up or texting, asking for advice. I, I find it all very strange, Will. You're a big deal now, Steve. Well, for a short bloke. <laughs> I'll talk about making you feel like a big deal. You're one of my key influences. Okay. And because I think in terms of someone who puts the individual, focuses on an individual and makes it an enjoyable experience for the individual person. And we'll talk about their needs. Yeah, I I really love being coached by you. No, no, I like that, Will. I'm a bit worried. I remember a chat we had, going back years, you might not remember it, but you, you said to me, I'm not sure whether to coach and like play a coach. And I, I don't know if you remember this. So I said to you, no. I said, you have to decide what you want to do. As a player, Will, you make a coach than a player was my kind of honest assessment at that time. But you really wanted to coach and I could see you were just chomping at the bit with it. And I said, you, you need to kind of look at what you want to do because I think the players are listening to you. But then possibly when they see you go on the pitch, it all goes a bit wrong. <laughs> Is that fair? That was a fair assessment at the time for me anyway. Um, and obviously you've gone on to do these amazing things. I'm just, I always speak about you. I'm blown away by this amazing coach that, um, yeah, I know from uh, from years and years ago. And I do remember that conversation, Will, because you asked me and I said, I, you, I just said, see, you need to decide. I didn't, I didn't say all that about it all going wrong. I just said, you need to decide what you want to do because... There's two very different things, being a player or a, or a coach. Yeah, I was also quite, I suppose, quite lucky at the time, in a way, because I hurt my knee. And yeah, that then gave me time when I couldn't do anything. And then coming back from that, I was like, oh, I'll, I'll do it. But yeah, I think I, I talk to players now. It's funny what you said earlier about enjoy playing. Yeah. Because there's, there, was pe- there was a period of time, certainly while I was at school, where there were moments where I resented not being able to go and play on a Saturday. Yeah. And, you know, you, you, you get wrapped up in the joy that, you know, all these kids are loving playing hockey, but you're there like... But there's lots that don't. <laughs> yeah, and it, but it's also sort of like, I, I wish I was playing. Yeah, and that was, so that's frustrating. And so one of the girls we have at the club here... She's done a master's in the US and was going to coach over there. And obviously there's no real adult hockey in America. Yeah. And I'm just like, if I was you, I'd stay in Europe. You, you know, you can play at a very high level for at least another five years and then do the coaching. Yeah. If you go to America to do it full time, you're basically writing off your playing. And I just think when the playing is taken away from you, regardless of the 
level of ability. There's a reason we all play sport. Yeah. You, you do miss it. But yeah, no, definitely I wasn't being a player. In fact, I did have to play a few times for Warwick. I remember and they you will saying... testify that I... <laughs> they will testify that uh, I was very much a coach, not a player coach. Um, I, I've started playing again. Obviously, you said you had to stop due to your due to a knee injury for a time. I had um, heart surgery going back a few years, so that was me pretty much done. I was advised to play and due to medication and stuff. Um, and, and I do. I always played about one game a season, just to kind of you know just say I've played again. I'll pick my game very carefully. Um, and then I was being obviously doing this the stuff with the disability hockey. Actually, it's amazing. It kind of gave me a real love back of um, of playing and, and reminded me of why I enjoy it so much. Um, and we have friends at the clubs that I've played, that I've played for that I know, that do the vet stuff all the over 50s. And um, about two years ago, I thought, you know what, I'll give it a go on a Monday night. And um, oh my God, we'll, I've never been in so much pain for like, it's probably the first proper game I've played in 10 years. Played defender, I think we lost eight nil or something like that. It was dreadful. Man to man marking doesn't work. We go full circle with that. But it, it just, I loved it. I love being out on the pitch, and I play sort of every play every two or three weeks now. I'm an underage player. No one's been my age yet, worryingly. Um, so uh, and that's, I, I think, doing that has given me a real love back of it, and seeing my team. It's just that those car journeys, just those little things, having a pint afterwards. Um, just the normality of playing and not, I don't coach, I don't do anything. I just, we just go on and play. And there, there are some amazing players that are playing in that age group. And I'm just always kind of a little bit blown away by it when I come off the pitch. Like, they're good. They're really good. You just feel quite, yeah, it's lovely. It's lovely um, being able to do that on a Monday night every two or three weeks to have a little knock around. I think vets hockey is great fun. I do it here on a Thursday night. Does anyone question it's... your age yet? No, no. I actually, I remember <laughs> there was a few Monday nights I was at, at Warwick. So it, yeah. I would have been in my 20s and there was an over 35s or over 40s league on a Monday night. Yeah. And I I played a few games and no one questioned my I, I think I remember you saying, actually. It was so depressing. I was, um, I was asked to one of the, the opposition that we played against before we went into this short corner on the halfway line. He said, Steve, are you, um, do you fancy having a game for us? We've got this national competition. And he said, we just need to see your birth certificate. I was like, oh God, I'm a, <laughs> it's like, I'm a ringer. <laughs> it's like, how old? It was like a few months. I was really embarrassed by it. I think they just do it to catch people out because there's no way I was good enough for the team. But um, quite, quite embarrassed, but quite flattered at the same time. Um, yeah, just, just funny, isn't it? He just looked at me and went, really disappointed that I've been flouting some unwritten rules. Obviously, everyone will see it now if they watch this anyway. So we played against Shrewsbury a few weeks ago. They all had these sort of lemon yellow shell suits on. And that's always like, that's always a really bad sign. I looked at their ages and they're like 60-ish. And I was like, mm. and then I looked at the track suits and just thought something doesn't match here. Then they started going through this rigorous warm-up together. Our warm-up involves trying to find a ball out of someone's bag. That's it now. You know, years ago when you're, you know, 20-ish, you know, all those hockey balls flying everywhere, isn't there? Now at Vets, there's this, like, intense stretching goes on and no one even gets a ball out until the very start of the game. That's it. 
these guys were going through it all. Oh my god! So I'd had um, I'd had a fairly bad kind of week or two up to that point, and um, I'd been really looking forward to um, to playing that night. I think I got dressed into my hockey stuff at nine in the morning. You know, like proper excited about it. I went into work the next day. I was like, oh yeah, it was. So now I used to. I was like, yeah, all right. So I played hockey last night. They said, how'd you get on? I said, oh, I don't know, it was six, seven, eight, nine. And they were like, oh, wow, was it all right? I was like, no, it wasn't good. They put six, seven, eight or nine past us. But you know what? I didn't think about anything that had gone on that um, for the past week while I was chasing that ball around and moaning for the whole the whole time. And then I spent the next few nights analysing every goal that went in, every missed pass that I'd made and all that stuff. So even at this age, you're still kind of, Go with it, but it was such a such a welcome distraction, Will, from a right shit week, quite frankly. So I'm not going to do the replay though. <laughs> that I was going to say, sorry, <laughs> sack that for a game of soldiers. There's no way I'll be going there. My God, it was could, so good, it was ridiculous. If you could replay one moment, it's not that bad. It would be not not turning up for that game. I think. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we're moving on. Can you summarise? the key points of your philosophy or approach and have there been any key moments that have helped shape it? Key moments. I, I think there are, there are key moments when you go through everything, can't they? You look at, I think for me that doing the disability hockey uh, and maybe just seeing a group of say guys, but a group of people rock up, didn't even know which end of the stick to hold, um, you know, and looking at it, which side to use all, all that kind of stuff. And you realise how much of a start point you're at sometimes. And no matter what you think people know, don't be afraid of, I suppose, asking them questions about their, about their knowledge, trying to work it out. Because it's all, yeah, it's easy. Oh, rolling the bloody stick wrong or they're doing this. People have never been told. Some of them, haven't they just kind of crack on with stuff and, and that's that. Um, so I suppose always inquiring and asking questions about people, finding out. And you said about that, I suppose that we call it a person-centred approach at work. Well, about putting the the person or the player first, trying to find out what motivates them. So I know for some of the young players we work with, they just want to get better and better and better. Others in the team want to win. Others want to have um, you know, a good game every week. It's trying to work out those things, what motivates those players to turn up. Some want to help other, the other players, some want to be that, that kind of uh, big sister or big brother to others or you know, whatever phrase you want to use, but that caring member of the team. A philosophy, I'm not, you know what, well, I'm not sure I have one really. I just try and keep things quite simple sometimes. I think for me, that's the best way that I can be, just quite just quite simple in my approach, really, to go with my personality. Do you want to talk about Tottenham now? How long we got? <laughs> Did you watch the all or nothing? You know what? I haven't seen my, my dad and my brother. So my I'm a Spurs fan, my dad and my brother are Spurs. They keep telling me off because I haven't seen it. Everyone's telling me off at work. I must, I just didn't want to do it. So I didn't agree with the way Mr. Mourinho was, um, what it was, the, the playing style of the side. I very much support Tottenham. I've seen some like Chris Waddle, Glenn Hoddle, Gaza, Janola, these amazing players with this flair. And I just thought, oh my God, he's stifling that out of it. And now I can see that obviously he didn't have a whole lot of players to play with. Um, so I'm, I've given him a second chance, which I'm sure he'll be very relieved to know. But there's, so that that's a really interesting kind of dilemma. Do you want your team to play well, or do you want your team to win, or do you want to be like Man City and Liverpool and do both? Yeah, it's just a. I know Jose is a big fan of the podcast, so just a quick shout out. Hi, Jose. 
Steve because says you've got a second chance. He has, yeah. Lucky I'm not a Watford director, otherwise you'd be out on your ear after three games. You've got to watch it. It is really good. It is. I know. You know what? It's just one of those things that I keep meaning to watch and just don't get round to it. Do you have Netflix? Yes. Look for the coach's playbook. I started to see it, and there was a few things I've been kind of watching, but Doc, I'm, I'm making a note of it. Well, the Doc Rivers episode. That's uh, really good. It's about an hour. It's a really good episode. I'm going to crack on with those over the next few nights, I think. Yeah, that's something to keep me busy. All right, is that a... Can I go... I'll say, can I go home? I won't, Well, You know, I've got to go and get my um, COVID testing kits now. Yeah, I'll, I'll leave you to it. All right, but thank you. Um, yeah, just thanks. It's nice to, I suppose, have a, have a platform to speak about disability hockey, really, because it, it's there, um, but it's still not getting... The amount of publicity, the amount of clubs involved with it and, and kind of all that goes with it, really. I know it's incredibly tricky at the moment, but yeah, it is there. There's a massive tournament coming up in 2021. I'm not sure if England are going to be sending a team, but that's, yeah, one of the people to decide, really. If there was a club who have encountered this, where would they go? And maybe also, not necessarily if they were in England, if there was someone else, what would, what would you say the routes are to... To find out about. Um, so, if you're in England and and you, you you know you may think you'd be interested in someone that might be interested, then there's a, an organisation called Access Sport, and they have, I suppose, a directory of clubs that have disability friendly sessions on or lawyers sessions, as they're often called. If you're in Holland, most clubs have um, what's called, I think, special hockey or inclusion hockey attached to the clubs as part of just you know a community sports offer. And we're just not at that level in England in any way, shape or form. It's very much that it'll be um, a Sunday morning session or, you know, the other sessions. If you go to a hockey pitch on a Wednesday night, there'll be men's, women's, juniors kind of all mixed up or throughout the evening coming through it. And it's, I suppose, that normalisation and the acceptance that it can go at the same time. And obviously there's all those pitch issues, pitch time, coach time, volunteer time that comes into it as well. Yeah. So I'm not daft enough to think that it's um, you know going to be solved or mag- magically done within a few years. It's an ongoing thing, but people need to know it's there. It's there and can happen. It can have real value to someone's club as well, with the you know the parents that could come into it, the volunteers that side as well. Yeah, I think one thing at school, you know, we spoke about Norman Hughes earlier. Yeah, one of the girls I had at, at school in our first team when she was in sixth form was going over to Wakefield twice a week to train from Hull. Yeah. Uh, once a week on a separate night to help yeah. the Flyers. I was like... Okay, I, brilliant. I was amazed when I found this out. You know, she does medicine now. Yeah. Um, but a huge commitment during her A-levels. And she was like, oh, I just love it. So the, there's a volunteer source there somewhere. Yeah, now, there is, yeah. Build it and they will come, to, to be honest. Yeah. But yeah, also Norman obviously is a great person to reach out to. Yeah, yeah. So lots of clubs do it. Access sport. A lot of it's tied into access sport, so they'll know that like Wakefield have them. That there's one in Birmingham and um, Surbiton do stuff. There's stuff at various schools as well down south. Generally, I don't know the whole lot of it, but there are there are lots of things going on. And Basil Brush even putting in appearance this year at one of them as well. I hosted a Zoom quiz in um in Flyers Week in May and had um. I think the Richardson Walshes were on it. So there's me doing this Zoom quiz, you know, 
and got loads of people on the split screen on Zoom. I've got my, my son Evan helping me, and um, we got a music round. So we did a sports round, music round, and I shared the music round by accident on Zoom. Didn't it all came up on the screen? All this, so I was trying to close the screen, not realizing that it was all there. Um, <laughs> the um, and the, the final thing was I got them. We did like a little scavenger hunt thing with um, that spelled flyers out. So F L Y E R Z. So in their little teams, had to go and get items. Um, a woman, one of the coaches from down south, dressed as a dog as a zebra. She put a zebra onesie on a dog or something. And then Swan from England hockey, we just walking across the screen with, with ladders. He'd been into his garage and got some ladders out. I thought, that is immense. That's the level of commitment that we need. You're an influencer. I'm a worrying one. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible at music quizzes, though. Oh, sorry, I've, uh, yeah, I've prattled on a bit here, Will, so apologies. You can chop it all down, all right? Was it a high-scoring music, man? I think I managed to chop it off just in time. Well, people weren't expecting it, so they weren't looking. They were making a cup or having a glass of wine or something. <laughs> uh, right, well, thank you, Steve. It's been great to chat. Thank you. I'll, I'm sure I'll speak to you soon at some, yeah, at some point. Yes. But, Take care, and uh, thank you very much. Get rid of the pigeons. I tried to tempt them down yesterday with bread. So my dad was like, use breadcrumbs to get them out. Yeah. Right. So I opened the loft hatch and I've put breadcrumbs around the edge of the loft hatch. And then I've put a step ladder there and there's bread on the steps and then down the stairs. Uh, <laughs> I go back about three hours later. This is like one of those surreal comedy sketches where they're just mugging you off, aren't they? You're feeding them and they're just going off. I, I go back three hours later. There was a load of feathers and what looks like the stuffing from the insulation. On, on the floor, all the bread is on the stepladder, all the bread is down the steps. But the stuff I'd put around the loft hatch, all gone. And they've had that and they've just gone off again. So now I have no idea how to deal with it. Buy a cat, maybe, and just throw a cat in the loft. You know, someone used to play hockey with us and um, he, used to, he used to work for British Rail. He used to do night shift, but he'd like, his mate leave him clocks in, don't, don't put this on. And, um, so I've got to go back to work. What are you doing? He's like, oh, we get to shoot the pigeons. Like, what? He said, yeah, they just get us in the roof of new streaks. They start like messing on the cables and the, the electric. So he was a bit of a, you know, you, you have some quite strange lads in your team from time to time, don't you? You've had more than most. <laughs> he was crackers. He used to go up into the loft at New Street and shoot pigeons. Come back, he'd like, yeah. When he got back 15 today, I was like, Ew. Is this a real thing? He said, yeah, we get paid overtime for it. <laughs> I don't think he had his own gun. I mean, there's so many questions about this that, that I've thought about now that just staggers belief. I had a goalie at Warwick who had a pet bird of prey and a crossbow. And one day we turned up to a... It was a match at home and he was getting his goalie kit out the back of the car and both of these things, the bird of prey in a cage and a crossbow was in his boot. And I'm like, what on earth? You know, you get to that point in life where you just look and you're, you're right. You just go like that and you just think, only later you think this is just some stuff's getting way out of hand here. That's what he brings out publicly. What does he keep at home? Oh, I don't want to. Joe Exotic. Oh. Tiger King. Someone at work who's got loads of snakes that we didn't realise when he came in. He's like, oh, yeah, one escapes. Like, Why don't you read? He's like, 
Well, a little bit, but it'll turn up and it's, it's been fed, so it won't attack anything for a while. Okay. And then he just carries on walking around. Not right, yeah. Okay. I don't want to goldfish or hamsters anymore, not deadly animals that can cause havoc. There you go. Like top trumps. Your pet has to be able to kill the other person's pet. Otherwise, there's no point having it. That's a slightly different version. I'm on to Star Wars top trumps at the moment, Will. Oh, my favourite top trumps was Shrek 2. Shrek 2 top, top trumps was a great set of top trumps. Didn't know. Just saying. Star Wars or Harry Potter. Have you, been, have you watched The Mandalorian? Yes. My son just it's that their thing like Saturday afternoon or Saturday evening will at seven o'clock we'll put it on and I'll my son was just like this we just open mouthed at last week's episode with a you have seen it haven't you I'm not going to yeah, do yeah. the spoiler yeah with a rear with Luke and R two D two obviously yeah I was both really excited and also slightly disappointed that it was Skywalker I was like could, who did you could, want it to be. I don't know. There was someone online was saying it could they could have done Mace Windu because he died. They could have yeah come back with a bionic arm and scars or something like that. I can't work out the timelines with it all. My son's so he's like, yeah, well he died after that. I'm like, I just don't get it. I just don't get it. It just it, it stresses me. Might as well have had Marty McFly there in Back to the Future with his Mandalorian or Delorean or whatever it was. Yeah, it's Mandalorian. Doc Brown is Boris Johnson here. <laughs> uh, my my claim to fame is: um, Have you seen Rogue One? Yes. So Felicity Jones loves that film. Rogue One. I yeah. think it's one of the best Star Wars ones. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Uh, Felicity Jones, who's the girl in it? I yeah. acted. I acted on stage with her at school. She went to King Edward's Handsworth. She was in my sister's English sure. class. Yeah. Yeah. It may have been like Jesus Christ Superstar or something like that. I can't remember what the, what the play was, but yeah. I'm, I'm on stage with an Oscar-nominated actress. Boom. Well, and you look at those different career paths. Will. I know, yeah, what happened? I think maybe the fact that she went she went to Oxford University probably helped as well. And you, not so much. <laughs> and me, no. no. Not so much. No, I don't think I have a claim to fame like that. That's quite a good one. That's a, that is a good one, yeah. The other one is someone else who was at my school who was in the same same production or maybe the production the year before. His guy called Gwillem Lee, who was in Midsummer yeah. Murders, but he also played Brian May in Bohemian Rhapsody. Clearly, you followed the wrong uh, the wrong career path, Will, I didn't you? Gone into acting to this day. Instead of Saturday mornings around the hockey pitch, you should have been on a tread in the boards. Is that what they say? Yeah, very much so. As promised, thanks to our supporters Dragon Hockey, this week you can win an exclusive goodie bag full of loads of cool Dragon stash. Simply head to Twitter and follow me, at WillMurray86. Like my post with our exclusive Dragon Hockey discount code and tag two friends in it. We will announce the winner of the competition in two weeks' time. Good luck. And don't forget to check out Dragonfield Hockey on Instagram. Thanks to Steve for his time. I always love catching up with him. He's doing some amazing work, and if you're interested in Flyers Hockey, he's worth finding on Twitter to point you in the right direction. Also, I'm sure everyone will be relieved to know that I've managed to get rid of my pigeons. Elliot's been busy for the last few weeks designing the Leftfield Thinking website. 
So go check out www.leftfieldthinking.com where you can get details on all of our projects and services. Remember, if you're enjoying our podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you are listening. We've got some great interviews still to release this season, including former GB in England head coach Jason Lee, multiple Olympic champion coach Marcus Weiser, and Australian legend Katrina Powell. So tune in next time for some more left field thinking.